Thank you, ladies. Paul, appreciate that. All right. Well, we're back in the Gospel of John, of course, this morning. But we're in chapter 7. We're in chapter 6 for quite a while. But you might remember being in John chapter 6, Jesus spent a good deal of time uh, teaching uh, the people about uh, who he is and what it meant to believe in him. And uh, it's interesting, Jesus didn't do things the way probably some, a publicist might tell him to do, uh, might not do what the, uh, you know, the, the church growth experts would have told him to do. Uh, he spoke some truth that was very difficult. In fact, a good, good part of the people who were following him, the crowd of people that were had started to think of themselves as followers of his, when they heard the things he taught, decided to leave, decided to quit following him, decided that, no, this is, this is too much. The, the way he asked them to follow him said, you need to join yourself to me. By believing in me, you're entering into a covenant relationship where I have all you need. And all that you have, you need to bring and have it dealt with by being joined to me and the things that I'm going to do looking ahead to the cross. And one of the things we learn from that, from Jesus, is that he is always doing things according to his Father's plan. He's not concerned about what the world around him thinks. He's not concerned about what might gain him more numbers of people following him, but he, he's concerned that he, he follows through on the plan of God as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit put that plan together uh, before the foundation of the earth. So follow along with me now, if you would, as I read John chapter 7, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 18. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here, and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time is has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stay, stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself went up also, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. 
But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The the Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak to you from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. All right, so we've taken a shift in time. Uh, Of course, John doesn't tell us everything about Jesus' life. Matter of fact, he tells us at the very end of the book, if he did, it wouldn't be room for all the books that would be written about what Jesus taught and did. And so according to verses 1 and 2, it says that after these things, he was walking in Galilee, uh, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. And so this is a period of about six months since we last saw uh, Jesus up in Galilee. And uh, the other Gospels tell us some of the details of what happened during that six months, but that's not John's purpose to tell us everything. But they do tell us that he, he, he did some traveling uh, quite a bit within Galilee. Uh, he was healing uh, people who were sick. He was casting out demons. Uh, he even fed an, another group a set of 4,000 men during this time. Uh, But most of that time, that six months, was actually not spent with crowds of people. It was spent instead with the twelve. The ones, remember, he had just challenged in in the end of chapter 6, are you too going to go away? And remember what Peter's answer was as he spoke for the group. He said, where shall we go, Lord? Only you have the words of eternal life. And his priority was on that. Although he sometimes spoke to large crowds, sometimes large groups of people followed him, Jesus' priority was on training these 12 men that he had called out for himself. And he had actually shrunken by his teaching the big crowds. And so he's really focusing in on these men who once Jesus has has gone to the cross and given his life to pay for the the cost for, for the sin of mankind, risen from the dead, gone back to heaven. These, these actually 11 of the 12, because remember he finishes out chapter 6 by saying, and one of you is a devil, is the devil. One of you is going to do this, what Satan wants. One of you is going to betray me. And so he pours his life, especially into those 11. And so finally, when we get to, to verse 2 of chapter 7, it says he is going to go then to Jerusalem, having stayed in Galilee because the Jews were trying to kill him. And that takes us clear back to chapter 5 with the interactions that Jesus had uh, with the Jewish leaders after he healed the man at the pool. Remember that? And they they says they were wanting to kill him because he, he made himself equal with God, saying that God was his own father. So that conflict has continued to go on since the last time he was in Jerusalem. 
And, and, and now he's going to go back because it says the, the Feast of Booths was near. And we're not as familiar with the Feast of Booths as we are, for instance, with Passover. But the Feast of Booths was one of, one of along with Passover, three feasts where all of the, all the men were required to go to Jerusalem. And this was really a family thing. It, it was a, a harvest festival. It happened in the fall after the, after the uh, uh, grain harvest had come in. It was also called the Feast of Ingathering. Or sometimes it was just called the feast. That's of how, how much importance it was in, the, in the, the religious and both, and also I think the social life of Israel. So it was a time of celebrating the harvest and bringing an offering to the Lord. And there were sacrifices each day that were, that were specified in, in the law. And I believe it was 70 different, 70, 70 bowls that were sacrificed over the course, so many per day, and in a decreasing number, as, long, as, long, as well as other animals. But it was a time of a festive time, and it was an interesting time because it's called the Feast of Booths for a reason. Uh, the people were to, during this week, long feast of seven days, and then a, a, a kind of a capstone, an eighth day, where they had uh, additional sacrifices made, but they would live in booths made from leaves and branches. As a reminder how when they had been in Egypt as slaves, God had sent Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And then as they followed Moses through the wilderness, they lived in temporary shelters, in tents or in booths. And so it was a little bit of an adventure as well. As you took your family and you went to Jerusalem, and you set up these booths all over the place. And people would, would, would celebratory mood because the harvest has come. But not only that, we have a God who cares for us, who brought us out of Egypt, and brought us through the wilderness, and brought us to this promised land to live. And so Jesus is going to be heading to Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. But it has to be in the proper timing because he's always seeking to do what his father wants him to do. Well, the other thing about a feast is that it was very family-oriented. And we start off this chapter actually with interaction between Jesus and his brothers who are the, uh, the natural children of Mary and Joseph who were born after. So his, so his younger brothers or half-brothers you could say since uh, Joseph is actually their father. Verse 3, it says, Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And so they have a plan for him, it seems, but it's a man-centered plan, isn't it? Um, it's really about gaining followers, about showing off, his abilities, the miracles that he can do, the teaching that he can do, they point Jesus to where there are people, where the people are going to be going for this feast, where, where Jerusalem is going to swell by tens of thousands. They're like, well, if you want to have a following, you should be in Jerusalem. You need, you need, you need to get going. You need to get down there. Let your, let your disciples see your miracles, hear your teaching. 
Go to the place of importance where all the people are going this week. And let them get a really good look at you. In fact, the word to see is, again, a word that we've seen, which means not just to, to see offhand, but to really get a good look and to be able to study someone or something. It says, get down there so people can really get a good look at you if you're going to be this great teacher, this great leader. Show yourself, they say, to the world. And, and you know, one of the things about written, the written word is we don't know the tone of voice they used. Because verse 5 tells us what? Even they weren't believing in Jesus. So could it be there's some sarcasm in their voice? Oh, if you're going to be this great leader, you need to get where the people are. Go, go show yourself to the world, Jesus, if you're going to be a great teacher. Uh, we don't know that for sure because it's not there in the text. But that could have been the tone they were using. It could be they wanted Jesus to be built up, become popular because of what they might get out of it. But it says these are words of unbelief. Even those who had grown up with him, even those who had spent their lives with Jesus, and the fact that he was the oldest, they'd always known Jesus since they were born. Which tells us again what we learned with Judas, right? Being in the vicinity of Jesus and his truth doesn't make a person a believer. You could be in the same place. You can hear it repeatedly again and again. You can have relatives who believe in Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, and not believe yourself. Just being around where the truth is, being around where people believe in Jesus, does nothing unless you yourself believe in him. That's what's happened to his brothers. You know, and you might think, oh, well, if I'd have grown up with Jesus, if I'd have been around to hear him teach, if I'd have been around to see him do miracles, that'd have been really easy to believe. Not always. Sometimes that familiarity, you think, yeah, yeah, that's just my big brother. Or maybe you're in, a lot of times it has to do with motivation. Why are you spending time with this person? Judas had his total different motivation, right? He never did believe in Jesus. Now, the other side of it is that there's, there's also hope. Uh, because not believing may turn into belief even after a long time of spiritual blindness. Because we find out that some of his brothers eventually did believe. In fact, we know that James and uh, the one that's listed in, in Matthew as Judas both did believe. In fact, they wrote letters to people that are included in the Bible, the book of James and the book of Jude. So here we have, yeah, don't give up on people just because they don't believe at the time you think they ought to. Keep on giving them the truth. Maybe waiting until they get to that place where the Holy Spirit, you know, says, hey, don't you notice what's going on right here in front of you? Realize, yes, he's your brother, but he's also the Son of God. He's also the Savior of the world. So keep on praying, keep on sharing the truth with people you know. Maybe they've been around it all their lives, never actually come to a point of belief, but still has for them to believe in his son Jesus. Well, now Jesus gives them his perspective on going to the feast. In verse 6, it says, So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you. 
but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And here Jesus reintroduced, reintroduced to a concept, actually, we just first have seen in John chapter 2. And you might remember at the, at the wedding feast in Cana, when his mother comes and says, they have no wine. And Jesus says to her, my time hasn't come. What does this have to do with us? So that's really the first time we're introduced to it at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. But now... We begin to see an increase in him mentioning it. In fact, he's, he mentions it twice in the, these three verses. My time is not here yet. And it's specific to him as the Messiah. Because as he says to his brothers, well, it's always an opportune time. It's always a good time for you. You go ahead and go down to the feast. It's a good time for you. But he was so keyed in on what was the Father's timing for him in everything. Now, most of the time when Jesus talks about his time, He's talking about when he would be arrested and taken to the cross and crucified. That was the time that he was specifically thinking of. And so he ordered so many of the things that he did related to that. And so he didn't put himself in a position to cause an uproar and accelerate the, the, the rebellious things that the Jewish leaders were going to do that would eventually be the road that would take him to the cross. And so he's very sensitive when it is he's supposed to do what he does. And he is here. Part of that is that he also understands the relationship that he will have with the world. That's something that's sometimes hard for us to understand there in verse, verse 7, where he says, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. I think oftentimes we think, well, if someone is kind, they're nice, they do good things for people, then everyone will love them. And Jesus says that's not the truth. Um, for sin is far worse than we think. Do you remember what he said back in chapter 3 when he was talking to Nicodemus? Go back with me to chapter 3 of John, verses 19 and 20. He said, this is the judgment that the light, speaking of himself, the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. See, Jesus understood coming into to a world full of sinners that we don't like people to show our sin. But Jesus, simply by his character, simply by the fact that he was sinless, simply by the fact that he is God the Son, would show that, that people were sinners. And sin is such a serious thing that we, we will even hate the person who does good because it makes our sin stick out, right? Probably never had that happen, right? Never called anyone a goody two-shoes or somebody self-righteous because, oh, they made me look bad. But sin will do that, won't it? And even more so when the very Son of God comes and lives with you, among you, 
and always makes the right choice, always does what is good, always speaks of what is right. You'd think, oh, here is a good man. Let's, let's follow him. Yet so often the case is, no, I don't want him to take away those things I like to do. Because I know that's what I'm going to have to do because I deep down inside me, I know what I'm doing is evil. I know that the things I do are wrong. I know that I don't do what God calls me to do all the time or what I was made to do. And basically, as sinners, what we hate the most is being told what to do, right? Even when it's good for us. And Jesus understood that. He understood that sometimes it becomes so severe that people will even hate you, he says. That would be a role in him being taken, sent to the cross, right? And so... Having said that to his brothers, he basically says, I'm not going with the family down to the feast. He says, verse 8, Go to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And you might remember back in Luke chapter 2 when uh, Jesus has or is 12 years old. Do you remember how his family got down to Jerusalem for the Passover? They got together with friends, neighbors, family, and caravaned all together. And so this is likely, as his brothers are saying, come on, everybody's getting ready to go. You come with us. Come on, go show yourself to the people. And in essence, like Passover, you know, the time of the Feast of Booze was a time where everybody loved being together as family and, and friends and neighbors and all of that. And it was, more, it was safer to do the travel that way as well. So it's likely that's what they were doing again. But he sends them along. He says, you guys go ahead. I'm not going, in, and your translation might say, I'm not going yet to the feast. And that, that's probably the better way to put that because though that word yet isn't explicitly in there, it is in the verb tenses. And so there's some concern people have. Jesus said he wasn't going to the feast. Then he turns around and goes to the feast. Was he lying to them? No, I think in the way he puts it, what he's saying is, you go ahead, I'll be coming later. It's just implied in the, ten, the verb tenses that are there. And so those translations that put the word yet in there, it is a good valid translation of what he says. Because as he goes, the people in, in Jerusalem, remember he's been staying out of the area of Jerusalem, of Judea, because the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. They were looking for him so they could put him to death because they didn't like the fact that he made them look bad. Uh, because he actually spoke the truth about himself, that he is the Son of God, therefore equal with God. And so those who wanted to kill him would be looking for him where? Oh, with the group that came down from Nazareth. So there's a sense in which he was probably giving them a certain amount of protection. He was also keeping a confrontation with the Jewish leaders from happening too soon. Because again, he's completely lined up with his father's plan, with his timing for when each part of his ministry on earth would happen. And he may, may even be avoiding another attempt by the people as they did after he fed uh, the, you know, the, the 10 to 20,000 people, the 5,000 men, but 10 to 20,000 people. They wanted to take him and what? Make him king, right? And maybe that would have happened because he has been doing miracles and things. Maybe this would have turned into a triumphal entry at the wrong time. 
And so Jesus very wisely, very carefully, and following the plan of his father, goes down to Jerusalem. Then it says, basically, in verse 10, he quietly and timely plans his arrival. Um, verse 9 says, and he, having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But, verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. And so he, he chooses his time to be public at the Feast of Booths. It's not that he's going to hide the whole time but he knows that the timing is important. And so he goes after the feast has already started, so it decreases the chances of people seeing him, recognizing him, and making a big deal about him as he's traveling down, um, because the people would have all gone together in the, these large groups. On the other hand, also, he had no problem with traveling through Samaria. If you remember, the Jews didn't like to travel through Samaria. They'd actually go clear around that area in order to not, not go there. Some of them thinking they would be uh, made you know, unclean, ceremonially unclean by coming in contact with Samaritans who were not fully Jewish and, and other things like that. Jesus didn't have that problem, remember, and even spoke to a Samaritan woman. What's the, what's the atmosphere down in Jerusalem related to Jesus? Well, verse 11 tells us, the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? <clears throat> He's clearly still on their minds, even though he hasn't been in the area. They're, they're thinking, okay, this is a feast where all the men are required to go. Jesus will be here. We'll deal with him now. We will find him. We'll figure out a way to be rid of this man. Because remember, back clear back in chapter 5, verse 18, it says they were seeking to kill him. That's still going on. So he's stayed out of their way. He's continuing to do what God has for him in training his disciples and even uh, healing people as well as, as well as feeding people and doing other things. But Jesus, the hate that he, he spoke about that people had, it was, it was real. It wasn't just some sort of a, uh, a strange thing that he had on his mind. These people who were the leaders of the Jewish religion in Israel at the time, hated him enough they actually wanted him dead. It wasn't just that they didn't care for him. They wanted to do amen. But what about the rest of the people? Uh, verses 12 and 13 talk about them. It says, There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And again, that, that phrase, the Jews, means the Jewish religious leaders. And once more, John brings up this word grumbling, right? There's this murmur. There's, there's this under-the-surface under thing going on. People are talking about Jesus, but not openly. And this is both because they were discontent because they don't know who he is or what he is or where he's going to take them but also because they want to keep things under the radar of the Jewish leaders. Because though they are religious leaders, they still can make life difficult for people. They still can cause people to be cut off socially and religiously. And so it makes a big difference what those people think about them and what they do. But they're, they're divided. Some people are saying, 
He is a good man. Well, what about that option? Is their assessment correct about Jesus? Well, if he's only a good man, then they've got it wrong, right? That's an illogical position. This man's been going around and saying, I am, right? Saying, I am the Son of God. Making, making himself equal with God. So it's really illogical to say he's a good man and only a man. A lot of people will say, oh, Jesus, he was a good teacher. He was just a man, but he was a good teacher. Oh, a good teacher that goes around and calls himself God? Kind of can't avoid going to C.S. Lewis's words about this. Now, this is what he said in Mere Christianity. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And so though that opinion seems friendly to Jesus, it's really nonsense. He couldn't be just a good man or a good teacher with the things he was saying. He had to, in fact, either be, like he said, a devil or a lunatic, or he's Lord. He is the one that you should bow down before and say, I am in you. I believe in you. You are what I need to live. Other people said he leads the people astray. Well, the question then would be, in what ways does he lead them astray? Where does he lead them that's wrong? Jesus, in fact, corrected the, the false teaching of many of the religious leaders. You might be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount where he says, You have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, and corrected false teaching that they'd been given. But not only that, he had a heavenly witness to the fact that his teaching was true. It's the miracles that he's been performing. They actually would require the power of God to accomplish. And let's just look at, at three places in John that help us to understand that his miracles give credibility then to his teaching. John chapter 3, verse 2. <clears throat> this is Nicodemus speaking. It says, This man came to Jesus by night. He's a Pharisee, he is one of those leaders of the Jews came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, Nicodemus got it. He'd seen the things that Jesus was doing. said, well, if you can do these things, God's with you. Therefore, you have God's words as well. Chapter 5, verse 36 You might remember this. It says, but the testimony which I have, this is Jesus speaking, is greater than the testimony of John. 
for the works which my which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus says, you can believe my words because you can see that the power of God, my Father, is working through me. So believe my words. And if we jump ahead of where we're at, John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, They're asking, are you really the Messiah? Are you the one we've been waiting for? And he says, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. So he says, I've been telling you who I am all along. But if you can't believe my words, believe the things that I've done. And so the, the assessment that Jesus leads the people astray is, Obviously false because of the power of God that's working through him. But why is it the people aren't just open about it? Well, it says back in John chapter 7, it's because they were afraid. It was the fear of the Jews, again, the Jewish leaders. In other words, there really are consequences for, for truly believing in Jesus. As Jesus defined believing back in chapter 6, he showed that when you believe in him, you're connected with him, you're united with him. Therefore, the hate that Jesus talked about in verse 7, if you're connected with Jesus and they hate him, guess what? That hate is going to come to you as well. It can't be believe in Jesus and not have the hate of the world come your way in some way or another. And it seems like the Jewish leaders on the whole have put themselves into the group that Jesus spoke about in in John 7. They are of the world, not of God, even though they are religious people. You have to understand that. Just because someone is religious or someone claims certain things about God doesn't mean they really have a relationship with God. They're religious, these men, but not godly. It's the same struggle we have today, but we need to face up to it. We need to be true to who we are as followers of Jesus, even when it costs us. And I know that's easy to say in our time. It doesn't cost us too much. But I think the time's coming when it will. So we need to be prepared. We need to consider that in advance. And stop and think about it. Would you, would you avoid letting people know who your spouse is? If you knew you were going to get trouble for it, hope not. Or your parents, or your children. Those are very close relationships, right? Same thing with Jesus. He's even closer to us than any of those relationships. It's really called on to own Jesus, to speak of him, to testify of him, to be, to be those who are excited that we are united with him. And then we get to verse 14. Jesus chooses now the time and the place to go public. <clears throat> and it seems as though that he's, he's come down unnoticed until he sits down and begins to teach in the temple courts. And, and if you want to go ahead and put that picture up uh, that has to do with the, or shows the temple courts again. <clears throat> um. 
while, maybe too long. Are you with me, Anna? Just, it just gives you a little bit of an idea, just the very last picture in that uh, section. But if you remember, this massive place that Jesus taught probably back in the, maybe in Solomon's colonnade, and during this feast, people everywhere. And it makes the actions by the priests and the rabbis who want to, to, to have him killed or to work against him very unlikely because of the crowds. Because Jesus, there were still those people who were very, he was very popular with because, in fact, he had done miracles. He was speaking unlike other teachers. And so because the, te the, the religious leaders fear the people, there is a perfect place for Jesus now to, to show up and to begin teaching, to begin speaking truth. He's not looking for a final showdown here, but it is important for him to, to present himself for who he is and to teach the people. And Jesus' teaching was excellent. Uh, they couldn't deny that he was teaching well, that he brought up valid points. So they had to attack something other than the content. And you'll notice there in verse 15 that then the Jews were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? Notice they don't say, Oh, the, oh he's totally off base. Oh, he's not teaching what, what God's Word says. No, they're saying, how can he be like this? He didn't go to the school of Gamaliel. He didn't go to this rabbi, be a, a, a disciple of this rabbi or that rabbi. But he didn't teach like them either. He taught, if you remember, uh, in other places, as someone having authority. If you look back at, at Matthew chapter 7, that was people's assessment of Jesus when he taught. Matthew chapter 7, 28 and 29. I'm sorry, Matthew 7, 28 and 29. It says, And when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teachings, for he was teaching them as someone having authority and not as their scribes. In other words, what their teachers would do, their experts in, in the Old Testament law would do, is they would teach and they would quote Rabbi so-and-so, who learned from Rabbi so-and-so, who was associated with Rabbi so-and-so. Thus, here's what I have to teach you. Jesus didn't teach that way. He taught as someone who himself had authority about these things. That his words were, in fact, truth. Because, of course, he is the truth, as he will say in what's recorded in John 14, 6, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not only that, we see even in John that Jesus often would not say so-and-so says, but he would say, I say to you. And we just have to go back as far as, as John chapter 5, verses 24 and 25 to see that. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, not this authority or that authority or that scribe or that priest or that rabbi, but I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear 
will live. Or chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus then said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And there he is speaking of himself being the bread of life. He says, I don't have to go back and refer to some other teacher. I say this to you. This is who I am. And then in, in verse 53 of chapter 6 as well, so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. And that shocking statement, right? He says, you have to become one with me. You have to take me as your life into yourself. And so Jesus was teaching unlike anyone else, and they noticed it. But still, they have to find some fault with him, right? Well, he doesn't follow this teacher or that school of thought or get his credentials from that place. And so Jesus now, in this last part, explains himself. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So you want to boil that down, it's my teaching's true because it comes from God, from my Father. In other words, here's my source. That's why you should believe me, my source is God himself. And you notice that Jesus' words here fit so well into the prophecy about the prophet that God would send to Israel. Remember back in chapter, after he fed the, the 5,000 in chapter 5, they, they, they were thinking, oh, you are the prophet. Well, where does that come from? Well, let's go one more time back to Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19. Because here God spoke to Moses and said this, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, like you. And here, here's what God says he will do with this prophet. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Did you see what Jesus said earlier about my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me? And he shall speak to them all that I command him. Verse 19, back in Deuteronomy. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus says to them, listen to me or you'll have to answer to God. Listen to me or you'll have to answer to my Father. This is serious. And he has the same message for the people who are following. Right? And for the Jewish leaders who are against him. And for us as well. But he also says, here's how you, you evaluate someone who is speaking and teaching. Who gets the glory for what it is that they're speaking and teaching about? For the results 
Because it says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So a person, it's so easy as a person who teaches to think, well, this is all about me. I'm the one up front. I'm the one people are looking at. I'm the one who should be praised. Jesus says, when you see that, you can disregard that person. The one who is true seeks the glory of the one who sent him. Jesus says, just like I have been sent by my Father, I have his words, give praise to my Father. He says, here's how you can tell. And all around him were these, these teachers of the law, these scribes, these Pharisees, and what did they want? They wanted to be praised. Jesus got on their case a lot about how they, they were just trying to put themselves in the limelight. He says, look at what I do. I simply speak what my Father gives me. I give my, all the glory to him. Jesus is God the Son. He deserves all glory. But even in that, he is, is the role of a teacher says, glorify my Father. He gave me these words. So even he was devoted to the idea that what he said should make people think, oh, what an amazing God we have. What an amazing Father you have, Jesus. Showed that he was genuine. Showed that he truly was the one who should be followed. But then he also points them as well to the idea that their heart's direction needed to be checked as well. And I got these points backwards if you're following in your outline. But it's, it's, look at verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. Where is your heart direction? Are you willing to do God's will? If that's what you're about, you'll know whether these things are true or not. Check your heart. These are words to Jewish people. Same kind of words that were given to them as they were headed into exile. When they had been under punishment because of their rebellion against God, God gave them the same kind of words. Turn with me to Jeremiah 29. Uh, words we like to claim for ourselves a lot of times, and there's a sense in which that's right. But understand, the context is to rebellious people who are under judgment, who are under discipline from God. Jeremiah 29, 11-13. If I can get these pages to separate out. There we go. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So even though you are headed for hard times, you're being taken out of your country, you're going to be captive for 70 years. I have a plan for you. I have a future and a hope for you, but listen up. Listen up if you want to know that, what that hope is. Then, then when you reach that point, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. When through this discipline you say, okay, you're right, God, I give up on me, doing things my way. 
I'm willing to seek you with all my heart instead of seeking my own pleasures. I'm willing to seek your, your way because it's the right way rather than my own way. He says, then you'll find me. God is there to be found. And Jesus is in essence saying the same thing here in the temple as he teaches. When you give up on you, when you seek God with all your heart, you're willing to do his will, even as I'm doing his will, he says, you'll understand that my words are from God. Well, Jesus has set the stage here for the time ahead that he's going to spend in Jerusalem and, and in the surrounding area. Uh, things will become even more confrontational as we move on in John chapter 7. And from the start, Jesus makes it clear that if the Jewish leaders and the people are going to oppose him, it's the Father that they're opposing, not just him. Jesus, though he is God, is simply carrying out the Father's will, bringing a message from his Father. And that's the best place to be, by the way. But if they're going to continue to oppose him, if they're going to speak against him, if they're going to misunderstand him, they've got to understand they are opposing the Father because that is who he is coming for. And I just say, if you're opposed and you're because you follow Jesus, people are against you because you belong to him, understand if your goal is to glorify God and people want to tear that down, primarily their attack isn't against you, but it's against the one who has sent you. It's against God. So let it be with God. And keep on being faithful. Follow the example Jesus gives as a human being and, and, and be the one who is sent by God. Not seeking your own glory, not seeking to speak your own words, but pass on the truth that we have from God to others. And then if people want to be against him, if people want to attack him, then their fight is with him, right? Not with you. Leave it with him. And make sure you're on the right side of the conflict, wanting to do the will of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we've uh, just scratched the surface again of Jesus' teaching. and We thank you for uh, preserving it for us and helping us to understand and giving your spirit to all who have believed in Jesus to, to comprehend and, and pull that together. And I just, I just ask that you would uh, make it hit at home with us in our days ahead our weeks and years, that you'd use this passage not because I've spoken it, because I've passed on your word. Pray that you'd be glorified in it and people would see what an amazing God you are. And that you would give us uh, confidence and courage in the, in the face, too, of this world that we're in that, that does hate you, that does hate Jesus. That uh, we would be able to have the same love that you have for them that you have had for us even when we were your enemies. Help us to continue to be faithful and proclaimers of your word. In Jesus' name I pray.
In a great house there are vessels, some of wood and some of clay. There are great ones and small ones, you can choose the ones you may. Some for service, some for beauty, others bear refreshing wine. Lord, I care not how you use me. Please just hear this prayer of mine. Make me a vessel unto honor. The fame of this world I refuse. Sanctify me, cleanse me. But in a great house there are vessels not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Lord, my vessel is empty, it is purged from dross and sin. By your precious blood on Calvary, you have cleansed me now within. Though unworthy for your service, yet your grace is mine today. So I offer you my vessel for your use. And this I pray. Make me a vessel unto honor. The fame of this world I refuse. Sanctify me, cleanse me, and fill me. Meet for the Long use. Yes, I'll be me. 